morning and welcome to each one of you. It's a blessing to be here in the house of the Lord again this morning, and I trust that we can learn something of benefit for all of us in our um, day-to-day living. I have been encouraged with what's been shared in devotions as well as um, share time here as well, and uh, certainly we have a lot to be thankful for. You know, um, it is easy for us to develop a mindset, if you will, that the world we live in is so bad. Um, You know, everything is just falling apart. Things are getting worse and worse. And I won't deny the challenges that we face today are real. Um, You know, here in this country, there's a decline in morality. There's political and global tensions. um, And there's just aspects that aren't easy. But one thing that we have to keep in mind, due to technology, we are so much more aware of global issues today than what we've ever would have been in the past. Uh, I thought of that several examples here this morning, uh, knowing what happened in India this past week and what happened in the Middle East and Iraq. Uh, You know, we, we know that stuff almost instantly. And so we know what's happening all over the place almost immediately. But, you know, we really live in good times compared to past some periods in history. Uh, The average life expectancy today is about 20 years longer than it was just 100 years ago. Just think about that. Most people live 20 years longer today than 100 years ago. In the 1700s, the infant and childhood mortality here in the colony of Virginia was 40%. 40% of children born never lived to adulthood. In a five-year period in the mid-1300s, between 100 and 200 million people died from Black Death, a plague. That was about estimated uh, close to a third of the world's population died in a five-year period. In Europe, it's thought that up to 60% of the population died off in that, those five years. So our experiences and what we're going through now amplify our perception of what's happened in the past, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, uh, or 1,000 or more years ago. We've just started studying the book of Acts and uh, talking about the establishment of the church um, and, and even just getting started in that now. And we probably all heard or even thought that churches today should be more like the New Testament churches. You know, but that presumes a whole lot. Um, And as I study scripture and as I think about this, I believe it's inaccurate to characterize the New Testament churches as particularly pure or perfect. When you read about the types of issues and the things that were dealt with in the book of Acts, the epistles, and the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, it becomes pretty evident to me that this was a period of time that was quite tumultuous, 
and there was a lot of upheaval even within the church. There was a lot more of that than tranquility. There wasn't a whole lot of tranquility. The one thing I will say, two characteristics of the New Testament church that we see throughout the book of Acts uh, and that I think we should emulate and learn from and were particular strengths was the power of prayer and the power of obedience to the Holy Spirit. Those are two things that I think we can clearly take from the, uh, the early church and lessons. But it wasn't particularly smooth or easy. <clears throat> this morning, I want us to start taking a look at uh, the church at Corinth. And uh, I want to study, begin a study uh, and walking through this book. And, but, you know, we need a little bit of context for all of this. And so this morning, we're going to spend a good bit of time just even thinking about the context of all of this. But as I have read and studied this church and the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I am convinced that of all the churches described in the New Testament and of the letters preserved for us today, the culture of Corinth and the problems facing the church there are most like 21st century America. It really addresses the issues that we're faced. For the last five years, the Holy Spirit's been nudging me to preach through this book. Uh, I've read it dozens of times, numerous times, just in one sitting, just reading from beginning to end. There's portions of this letter that are difficult to understand and portions that are challenging to address, but it is God's Word. And so I'm excited to be able to tackle this letter, but I'm also going to need your prayers for the wisdom and the courage in interpreting what it means for us today. And um, I do anticipate probably about 20 sermons um, from these 16 chapters um, in the coming months. I've entitled this morning's message, God is Faithful. Um, but we want to focus a bit on the city, the culture, and then also on the church. <clears throat> Corinth uh, was a resort city located on the Mediterranean Sea um, in what is now currently known as the country of Greece. And just for a little bit of context, this is Greece here. This is the city of Corinth. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the uh, Aegean, Aegean Sea, I believe, and the Adriatic Sea is over here. Turkey. Uh, when it comes to the New Testament, I just want to point out, this is a lot of the context of the world of the New Testament. You have Jerusalem over here in Israel. So this is where the seven churches, or a lot of the seven churches were located. This is where Ephesus uh, was located. Um, and then up in here is Thessalonica, and Philippi was up in here. So so th these are different names now, like this area was known as a KI back in that time. And then also over here you have the boot of Italy, Rome is on up in here. And so that's, as you think about Acts and the various cities and so forth, that is what we're talking of, that's the world that we're talking of. Corinth was a large and a modern city of that time. It was a beautiful city with palms and magnificent buildings. 
Historians believe that the population was probably between seven and 800,000 people in the city of Corinth at the time that this church was established. However, more than half of that population was slaves. So uh, I, I don't understand exactly how all that worked back then, but that gives you a little bit of context. That is the equivalent population um, in, of the current population in cities like Denver, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. would all have populations between seven and 800,000 people. And so that's the size city that we're talking about. Interestingly, it's about 100,000 more people than what live in Baltimore City or in Boston. So this was a large city, a lot of people. Uh, living in that area. In the second century, Corinth actually became the largest city in Greece. Corinth was known for its banking industry and the incredible wealth of the city. Every two years, there were athletic games, uh, kind of like the Olympics, I guess, that were held in Corinth and so it became a huge travel destination, people from all over the world traveling there during those events. Economically, I think we could compare it to a New York City or a Los Angeles in today's world. It was that significant in, in the current world. It was also a major port and trade city, and this is just zooming in on uh, the area that this was. Uh, and there, so there was cultural influence from all around the world coming right through this city. It was situated on a narrow strip of land uh, that connected the Aegean Sea and then there was a, uh, uh, and the uh, Adriatic Sea over there. Ships would dock on the one side, unload their cargo, and haul it across the six miles to the other side and put it on another ship to avoid having to go out around the southern tip of Greece here because that area was known for very tricky weather patterns and unpredictable storms. And so there was a lot of traffic right, right through that area of Corinth. Culturally, Corinth was a very wicked city, a city known for its immorality and sin. Um, it could be nicknamed Sin City. Uh, that, that is what it was known for. It was a mecca of sensuality and pleasure-seeking in the first century. In terms of today, cities by the, like Amsterdam, Bangkok, Las Vegas, Sacramento, and Buenos Aires would be cities that would have those types of reputations today. There were numerous pagan temples to different Greek and Roman deities. It was a Roman city in Greece, and so it had both Roman and Greek, heavy Roman and Greek influences. There were several temples to the Greek goddess of love the, uh, named Aphrodite. For people to be described as Corinthian meant to be called immoral or to Corinthianize meant loose and immoral living. And so that was the reputation of the city. Philosophically, 
they were almost a postmodern culture uh, in their own way. Now, certainly it was, it, it can't be, uh, literally. But there was a quote I found in um, a commentary that I was reading that described this, and I was like, this really is pretty, it, this is interesting. This is um, a, a, the, a commentary from the Greek text by Erdmans. With today's postmodern mood, we may compare, and here's the description of Corinth, self, the self-sufficient, self-congratulatory culture of Corinth, coupled with an obsession about peer group prestige, success in competition, their devaluing of tradition and universal values, if you will, and near contempt for those without standing in some chosen value system. All this provides an embarrassingly close model of a postmodern context for the gospel in our own times, even given the huge historical differences and distances in so many other respects. And then he goes on uh, a bit later. As an example of communicative action between the gospel and the world of, this, of given time, 1 Corinthians stands in a distinctive position of relevance to our own times. But just listening to those, reading over those descriptions of what was important in the culture of that time, it is very much, has a lot of similarities to what we face today. So Paul arrived in Corinth probably somewhere around 50 to 51 AD. We don't know exactly, so this would have been roughly 20 years, within 20 years after the resurrection and the establishment of the church. And he stayed at least 18 months to help get the church established. Um, and the account of the church being established is found in Acts 18. If you would turn there, I'd like to read there. Uh, and, it, and we see that he, so this is a map of the, uh, I believe is the second missionary journey that, he, that Paul made. But he was at Athens and went to Corinth um, at the end of chapter 17. Was, that was where Paul had preached the Sermon on Mars Hill. And then in chapter 18, uh, we go uh, into uh, the establishment of the church here. And I just want to point out on this map, this is more of Bible time. So here you have Achaia, you have Galatia is this whole area. Um, there's Syria and Macedonia. And so these terms that you hear in the scripture describe, this is what it was referring to. And so this gives you a little bit more of a picture. So verse 1 of Acts 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth <clears throat> and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks and when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. 
From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard in, in the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then Paul then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set thee to hurt thee, set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And then jumping down a number of verses, um, I think it's to verse 17. And the reason I'm mentioning is this, that this will be, we'll see in 1 Corinthians just a little bit later. Um, let's see, yeah, verse 17. All the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared for none of those things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of his brethren and sailed thence to Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. So Paul was there, it says for 18 months, but then it says later that he stayed a while longer, so we don't know, year and a half, two years, that he was there given, giving them instruction and helping them to get established. This letter that we know as 1 Corinthians was probably written about 55 to 57 AD, roughly five years after the church was established. It wasn't long thereafter. It was written from Ephesus, which is literally just across the Aegean Sea here, during Paul's third missionary journey. However, in chapter 5, verse 9, um, there's a verse that says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to accompany with fornicators. And so there's obviously there was another letter written prior to this um, that had been sent, but we don't have record of that. And so that, this is literally all that we know about this first letter that had apparently been uh, written but lost to history. <clears throat> what we do know from 1 Corinthians is that this church had significant problems. And likely, and it was likely one of the largest and most important churches in these early years. Uh, this would have been one of the first letters written that we have in the New Testament. Maybe not the first one. I think Galatians was the first one. But it would be of the first, uh, the earliest two or three letters that are written um, that we have in the New Testament. There were likely multiple reasons that this church, why this church in particular was struggling. Uh, for one, the Corinthian culture was pervasive. It, it just permeated everything. <clears throat> the church was likely a very diverse group. Um, although it was probably mostly non-Jews, but they were from various pagan backgrounds. And so you were dealing with the rich and the poor. We had the slave issue. Uh, you had slaves and free. You had Jews and Gentiles from a variety of pagan backgrounds. Um, and then you had various ethnicities thrown in there yet. And so it was a, a, a very diverse group of people. 
Interestingly, I believe that this is the only book in the New Testament, uh, only church in the New Testament, that there seems to have been, they erred on the side of permissiveness versus legalism. And so that's, that's a unique issue that is addressed here as well. And they were trying to figure out how a church should function in a place like Corinth. Paul hears while he's in Ephesus from others that are concerned as well as some questions that were apparently sent to him from the Corinthian church about what was happening there and things that were not appropriate and so that's what he sets out to address in this letter. I'd like for you to uh, stand and we're going to read the first part of this chapter together. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall, also, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized by the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name, and I baptized also the house of Stephanas. Besides, I know that I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to focus on the first part of this, and he starts out with his a typical greeting in, in a lot of these um, letters, uh, who it's from, who it's to, and, uh, and so forth. He's, Paul states here that he was called to be an apostle. It was not something that he pursued or that he, uh, he deserved necessarily, and this Sosthenes may have been the synagogue leader that was referenced in Acts 18, verse 17, who was beaten in front of the judgment seat um, while Paul was in Corinth. 
We don't need that. We don't know that for certain, but it may, it's the same name, and so it may have been the same person. <clears throat> what I find intriguing in these first several verses is that given the major problems that we know were present at the Church of Corinth, I find this greeting remarkable and encouraging. Now let's just think about this. So Paul makes it clear that he's writing to the church of God in Corinth. As dysfunctional as the church was, he recognized this body of believers as the ecclesia or assembly of God's people. He didn't greet them as the so-called church at Corinth or the dysfunctional church at Corinth or the deceived church at Corinth, but he gave them the benefit of the doubt and he was honoring them for working together as a church as best as they understood and, and were able to. <clears throat> but he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He calls the believers sanctified in Christ Jesus. So not only the church of God, but sanctified, set apart, consecrated, made holy. And then he goes even further and calls them the saints. Um, calls them saints. You know, how often do we hear the term saint used to describe any disciple of Jesus today? You know, it's usually in the context of the Roman Catholic Church declaring someone a saint after they have died because of the good life they lived. But all believers, all disciples of Jesus Christ are saints. And maybe we should use that word more in interaction just to remind us of that fact. Saints aren't perfect, but they are dedicated to God. They are God's people. They are committed disciples of Jesus. And so Paul is also equating the saints of Corinth to the saints everywhere in the world. He's equating them with uh, all other believers around the world. He doesn't consider them second class or inferior in spite of these significant corrections that Paul's going to be given. He is recognizing them both for where they came from and where he sees that God wants them, wants to take them. So the church of God, the sanctified, the saints of Corinth. What an affirmation to this group of believers there. One thing that I also noticed in these first verses is the frequency that Paul references Jesus Christ. Four times in these first three verses and then five more times in the next uh, several verses. So Paul continues then with the commendation and with a heart of gratitude, thanksgiving to, for these believers, for this church here in Corinth. He actually compliments them. He commends them. Um, recently I heard, and it's a good reminder for me to keep in context, that pastors or church leaders have the unique responsibility to both see the good in the church as well as to identify the deficiencies or the problems. And so that they can, and I was like, I think that's what Paul is doing here in, in, in a very good way, in a good, healthy way. He continues here, and there's five aspects of their faith that were acknowledged and commended. Um, and we're just going to go through these very quickly here. Um, so Paul is recognizing and giving credit to God for the redemptive work that he has done in the life of these believers. 
and as they attempt to figure out what it means to be disciples of Jesus. So he says, the grace of God was given to them. So there was clearly grace present in their lives, or they would still be living in pagan idolatry. And they probably didn't uh, understand what that fully meant, but, but it was there. And then he continues that they were made rich, or they were enriched in speech and knowledge through Jesus. Eloquent speech was a big deal to Corinthians, and knowledge was uh, very much of a cultural value as well. And so Paul is affirming these characteristics sourced in Jesus, in these believers. And so he's affirming them in that. Then he even says that there's evidence. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. There was evidence that their lives were changed because of the work of Christ. Then he goes on and says they're not lacking any gift or not lacking any spiritual gift. These believers were gifted with all the spiritual gifts that he had needed, uh, that he needed for this church to prosper. Um, and then concluding there, they eagerly await the revealing of Jesus Christ, sustained to the end, blameless and guiltless. They were ready and waiting for the return of Christ, and, and he was going to sustain them. But verse 9 is what I really want us to focus on. Um, just think about this a bit. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I believe that that is the core of this morning's message. God is faithful. It's God's church. It's Christ's body. It's the body of Christ. Satan will not prevail. Regardless of humanity's distortion and misunderstanding about the things of God, God is faithful. It doesn't really matter. Um, in spite of being a dysfunctional church, God is faithful. Disciples of Jesus are called to fellowship or koinonia with each other and with Jesus. And he brings that out here. Despite all of the things that he commanded the church for, they were still no less dysfunctional. They were dealing with divisions. They were dealing with scandals, lawsuits, immorality, drunkenness, quarreling. Those are all things that he's going to address later on. And instead of the full array of the spiritual gifts that were building up the church, they were tearing it down, tearing it apart. Instead of positively impacting the city of Corinth, the church was being influenced by this pagan city. The power of God was simply not being manifest in the church. God is faithful, and maybe they had lost a sense of that fellowship with Jesus, that relationship with Jesus. They were called into fellowship of his son. They failed to see that they were, uh, they were invited to be partners with Jesus in everything. As I was thinking about this, doesn't that ring true today, even 2,000 years later? Do we still struggle with that? I think we do. You know, many churches in America fail to enjoy that fellowship with Jesus in an ongoing, day-to-day kind of way. And this is what we were called to. 
And fellowship with Jesus Christ is possible only through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that can be manufactured. It's not something that can be made up. But the Holy Spirit makes the things of Jesus Christ known to us. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to what Jesus is wanting to do in and through this church. And I believe he wants to empower us to work through us in ways beyond what we maybe even expect. That's what happens when we follow the Spirit and do what Jesus wants us to do. God is faithful. He didn't give up on this dysfunctional church, uh, Corinthian church, and he doesn't give up on us today. He wants to work in and through us. He's calling us to fellowship, a joining together with our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the anointed king. And while this verse is not really referenced or is explicitly seen through the rest of the letter, Paul is calling the Corinthian believers back to this fact over and over. He's calling them to authentic fellowship and partnership with Jesus, a working together with Jesus as a functional body of his, rather than this radical independence. And in all of this, God is faithful, God is patient, he is merciful, he doesn't give up, he persists in in helping the church. The reality is that he cares deeply about the church of Jesus Christ. God cares deeply. It's the body of Christ. Why wouldn't he? Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it in the day of Jesus Christ. Often this verse is taken in the context of us personally. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't ever apply that way, but it was written to the Philippians, to the church. I believe it is, it is in context of the church, the body of Christ. And when Christ begins something, he will keep his end of the deal. Jesus died for humanity. And the church is the only physical representation of Jesus on earth today. And when he begins something, he doesn't give up on it. He died to make this possible. The church at Corinth had major problems. It was obviously dysfunctional, yet... Paul recognized the reality that in God's eyes, it was far from a failure. It was a work in progress because God is faithful. And that's true today. God is faithful. He cares deeply about us here at Faith Christian Fellowship. He isn't finished working on us. He isn't finished refining us into what he wants. He isn't finished addressing those areas, those weaknesses that need to be addressed but he's not going to give up on us because he's faithful. We are the body of Jesus Christ. His physical presence and representation in our communities, in our interactions with others. Let's embrace this call to fellowship with Jesus Christ in all that we do and then be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and in turn be faithful to God. Let's stand together for closing prayer.
Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for your care, your commitment, your investment in the body of Christ. Thank you that we can be a part of that. And I just pray that uh, this morning that you would just uh, remind us of, of how we can be a part of your, your plan here on this earth, of how we as a body can model and exemplify you to the world around us. I pray that as we uh, go through this book in Corinthians, that you would just speak to each one of us, reminding us uh, what you would like to do in our own lives. But uh, even now, I just ask that you would, uh, you would make this real, that you are faithful, and you're going to carry out your purpose, and you are going to ha be, have patience with us in coming alongside and fulfilling what you want to do. I just pray that we can be... Um, partners of yours in that work, whatever that is. Dismiss us here with your blessing, guide and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen.